forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All we need to do is admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father in the privacy of our priesthood and we'll be instantly forgiven, restored to fellowship for progress in spiritual life. So let's bow our heads and prepare for the study of God's Word. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers to study your Word. We thank you that you have preserved your Word for us, that it is absolutely sufficient in every area for our lives, that there is no situation in life that you have not given us everything we need for. Your Word indeed is sufficient. Father, now as we study your Word, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us that we would store these things in our soul, that they might be uh, brought to mind again when we need to apply them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with Dilbert, but I used to enjoy reading Dilbert. I don't know where to find Dilbert anymore. I'm lost in a new country. But uh, these are some... uh, Uh, A magazine recently ran a Dilbert Quotes contest. And they were looking for people to submit quotes from their real-life Dilbert-type managers. And these are real-life scenarios. And one of them is really close to home. The winner of the contest is the first one. This this is actual real-time event. This was something that somebody in Microsoft Corporation in Washington put out. As of tomorrow, as of tomorrow, employees will only be able to access the building using individual security cards. Pictures will be taken next Wednesday, and employees will receive their cards in two weeks. The second one is uh, what I, uh, from Likes Lines Shipping, what I need is a list of specific unknown problems we will encounter. The third one, and this comes from electric boat company email is not to be used to pass on information or data it should be used only for company business (laughs) the fourth one this project is so important we can't let things that are more important interfere with it another one my boss spent the entire weekend retyping a 25 page proposal that only needed corrections. She claims the disc I gave her was damaged and she couldn't edit it. The disc I gave her was right protected. <laughs> uh, and this sounds like a lot, of, uh, a lot of people we might know. Quote from the boss, Teamwork is a lot of people doing what I say. <laughs> okay, we are studying the first chapter of James. First chapter of James. Consider it all joy, my brethren, or count it to be all joy when you encounter various tests, knowing, or literally because you know, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be mature and complete, lacking 
in nothing. Now, as we've gone through these verses, we've looked at what it means to count something joy, that this is a command, it's in the imperative mood, and what that means is that this is not addressed to the emotions. When the Bible talks about joy, we're not talking about that emotional stimulation we receive when something goes in our favor. We're talking about a mental attitude of stability and optimism that is ours continually. It consists of, of a consistency of thought, tranquility, contentment. All of this is part of uh, emotional stability, stability. All of this is part of what the Bible means by joy. It is a happiness that Jesus Christ shares with us. He shares his joy with us as we mature. As we learn doctrine and apply it in our lives and as we grow to maturity, the results of that are that we develop a capacity for happiness. And as our capacity increases, our capacity for life, our capacity for blessing, our capacity um, for happiness, then God the Father then and only then begins to bestow on us those blessings He has for us in life. He doesn't do it because of who we are, what we do, anything else. But He is not going to bless us beyond our capacity. So if we haven't prepared ourselves to the study and application of God's Word and spiritual growth, then we're going to miss out on a lot of blessing that God has for us in time. The command is addressed to our volition, as all commands are, and to our mentality, to count it all joy whenever we encounter various trials. Now there is a relationship between joy and and gratitude. How is it that we come to the point of implementing joy? If I tell you that, that you need to use confession to solve problems, you know what to do. You admit your sins to God, pray, immediately get back in fellowship. If I say you need to use a faith rest drill to uh, implement that, you know that you need to uh, focus on promises and mix faith with promises. So what is the means? How do you go about uh, implementing joy is a problem-solving device. Well, that comes about, as we saw last week, through the doctrine of gratitude. Since some of you may not have been here, others of you just need to be reminded, we'll start over with the doctrine of gratitude. By way of introduction, there are two points. Gratitude is a tool for measuring the progress of the spiritual life in the soul. Your level of gratitude is a measuring device for your own spiritual maturity. Gratitude is the ministry of God the Holy Spirit making the benefits of the spiritual life pleasing to the mind. second part of the introduction is that spiritual progress in the soul of the believer is based on the consistent use of two power options. God has given us as believers two sources of power that work together. These relate to the Second and fourth problem-solving devices. They are the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our source of power. He not only indwells every believer, but at the moment of salvation, He fills every believer. As soon as we sin, we lose that filling, and it's recovered only through the use of 1 John 1.9. The filling of the Holy Spirit and doctrinal orientation, the power of the Word. It is the Spirit of God and the Word of God that work in tandem to give power to the believer in the spiritual life. You don't have one without the other. They work together. The Holy Spirit 
is like, in, in terms of an analogy, the Holy Spirit is like a mechanic. The doctrine from Scripture is like an old wrecked car, or, or like the tools that he uses, excuse me, the tools that the mechanic uses. And our life is comparable to a wrecked car. You take a wrecked car or a beat-up car, a car that has tremendous problems into a mechanic. If he has a screwdriver and a hammer and an old pair of pliers, there's a, if he's a good mechanic, he can do a tremendous amount to that car. It may take him a long time to do it, but he can do it. But if you give him a, a complete ratchet set, he can do a whole lot more. If you give him a complete set of screwdrivers, flatheads and Phillips heads, he can do a whole lot more. The more tools you give him, you give him computers, you give him the more advanced equipment, the more tools you give the mechanic, the better job he can do and the quicker he can do the job. The Holy Spirit is like the mechanic. If there are no tools, if there is no doctrine in your soul, he can't do anything to renovate the life. If you just have a lot of tools, but no mechanic... There's nobody to renovate the life. It just sits there. The two work together in tandem to completely renovate your thinking and renovate your life. Spiritual progress in the soul of the believer is based on the consistent use of these two power options resulting in increased doctrine in your soul. As doctrine increases in your soul then you focus more and more on who God is and what He has provided and less and less on who you are and your problems and your situation in life. As that happens, then you begin to think and look at life as God looks at life. You begin to look at everything from the divine viewpoint rather than the human viewpoint. As human viewpoint is reduced, you begin to realize more and more through grace orientation what God has provided for you and the response in the soul of the believer is gratitude. The more you grow, the more gratitude you have. The more gratitude you have, the more joy you have. Gratitude is described in several verses. Let's look at those under point two, the scriptures related to gratitude. First Thessalonians 5.18 And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Notice it is in everything in this passage. In everything. That means in every situation, in every circumstance. There's no situation, there's no circumstance, there's no disappointment, there's no failure, there's no heartache, there's no problem you will ever encounter in life that God the Father wasn't completely and totally aware of billions and billions of years ago. And in His plan in eternity past, He made a provision so that the believer could resolve any difficulty, any problem he has in his life. And all, all the, the, the doctrine necessary for that is contained in the Word of God. So because of that, we know that in everything, in every single situation, no matter how devastating it may be to you, no matter how tragic it might be, no matter how overwhelming it might seem, no matter how defeated you might feel, you can know that in every single situation in life, you can have absolute maximum confidence in God and gratitude toward God for that situation because if you're not dead then God still has a plan for your life and if God still has a plan for your life then you know that in that situation God is going to give you the victory through the use of doctrine 
And that is that testing, that problem, that situation is there for the very purpose of making you stronger spiritually and advancing you in the spiritual life. Second verse is Ephesians 5.20. Always be thankful for all things. Now here we move from in everything, in every situation, to for all things. For every single thing that comes into your life. Be thankful for it. Not simply be thankful in that situation, but be thankful for those things to God, even the Father, through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Third verse, Colossians 2.7. Colossians 2.7. Having been rooted and grounded, this is the process of learning Bible doctrine. It's a foundation, having been rooted and grounded and having been edified in Him. So this is a believer that has a certain amount of doctrine already in the soul, giving him a certain stability. Having been rooted and grounded and having been edified in Him and being stabilized by means of doctrine as you have been taught, overflowing with thanksgiving. So you have a progress here, rooted and grounded in the past, having been edified by Him in the past, being stabilized by means of doctrine as you've been taught, overflowing with thanksgiving. D. Colossians 1.12 Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us for a share in the endowment of the saints. So point number three. Gratitude is not directed toward other people, but towards God. Toward His grace and toward His Word. Gratitude is your appreciation for God not people. Too often what happens in the spiritual life, in the Christian life, we get our focus on people. And before long we start worrying about what people think about us instead of what God thinks about us. We start worrying about our relationships with people instead of our relationship with God. And the standard practice in most evangelicalism is that we start measuring our spiritual life by our relationships with people. And the issue in Scripture is, get your relationship with God right and your relationship with people will follow. The issue is not what people think. The issue is what God thinks. So the focus for gratitude is towards God, not people. Gratitude is a consequence of your fellowship with God and is a measure of the, the depth of the rapport that you have with God. Happiness is also related to is related to gratitude in various ways. Point number one, for true happiness, Bible doctrine must be more important than anything else in life. If you want to have true happiness, then Bible doctrine must be more important than anything else in life. In your scale of values, you must make doctrine the highest priority. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your energy? What is it that distracts you from Bible doctrine? What is it that keeps you from Bible class on Wednesday night, from prayer meeting, from uh, Sunday morning? What is it that are the distractions that you give higher priority to? If you want to have true happiness, then Bible doctrine must be more important than anything else in life because real happiness is based on your relationship with God, which is based on your knowledge of doctrine and the doctrine that's in your soul. Happiness is not in your circumstances. Happiness is not in your paycheck. Happiness is not where you live. Happiness is not the friends you have or you don't have. Happiness is not a social life. 
Happiness is not based on any of those things. Happiness is based on your relationship with God. And when your relationship with God is right, then it doesn't matter what those circumstances are. When you base your happiness on your circumstances or on people or on how people respond to you, then what you are saying is that my happiness is totally dependent on somebody else, something else, or some circumstance. And to the degree that you place your happiness and your emotional tranquility in the control of somebody else, to that degree you're enslaving yourself to somebody else or to something else. Point number two, gratitude is the basis for true happiness. And you can't have happiness without gratitude. We see the linkage in Colossians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Colossians 1, 11 and 12. Let me read that to you. Paul says, Strengthened with all power, this relates to the filling of the Holy Spirit, according to, or according to the measure of His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. That's the connection. Joyously giving thanks to the Father. The connection between gratitude is that if your focus is not on gratitude to the Lord then the consequence is going to be personal misery. When you're not focused on gratitude, then what's going to happen is that you're in your relationship with the Lord, you're going to give, give yourself over to bitterness and anger and resentment and hostility toward God. And the end result is you're going to make yourself miserable because you're constantly looking at whatever it is that you don't have that you think you ought to have to be happy. And the person you're going to end up blaming for that is always going to be God. So the issue is, are you going to have gratitude in your soul in order to implement happiness, sharing the happiness of God, having real biblical joy in your life, or are you going to put your focus on what you don't have? The believer who's in a perpetual state of carnality. Now, what is carnality? At the cross, we're saved. We enter into an eternal relationship with God. We're placed in Christ. This is our eternal position. In terms of our relationship with God in time, we are filled with the Holy Spirit or we are under the control of the sin nature. When we're outside the filling of the Holy Spirit under the control of the sin nature, We are said to be carnal. The carnal believer, if he stays there long enough, will have a life that is not any different from the life of the unbeliever. He he will act the same way. He'll talk the same way. He'll do the same things. His life won't be any appreciably different. uh, Won't be appreciably any different than the life of the unbeliever. And that's a disaster. He's going to be dominated by bitterness, by resentment, and by anger. The result of this is that as he continues to go in this direction, then he is going to wipe out any capacity for happiness that he ever developed through spiritual growth. He will go through a regression in his spiritual life. He will lose all the advance that he's done and he will begin to back up. In fact, his life will be a whole lot more miserable and a lot worse. And he'll be involved probably in a lot more... uh, sin, more devastating sin than he ever was when he was an unbeliever. And this person will end up absolutely miserable and unhappy. A classic example in the scripture is the Exodus generation. 
Here God provided so much for them, gave them so much, did so much to free them from slavery, from the bondage in Egypt, and yet when they got out in the wilderness and God provided for them every day, provided food for them, provided sustenance, protection, guidance, direction, everything, and was going to take them to a land that was beyond anything they could ever ever imagine, because they rejected the provision of God and the power of God, they ended up having lives that were miserable, and every one of them died to sin unto death out in the wilderness before the, uh, their children could enter into the land that God had promised. So when we look at the command in James 1-2, we see that we are to count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, and we do that by developing gratitude in our heart. Now when we come back to the text and look at it, we want to move on into verse 2. Now in your English Bible, at least in the translation I use in New American Standard, it says, Consider it all joy. That's your main verb. Knowing. Now this is a participle. Knowing. Usually when you have a, ver- a word in English that ends with ing, it's a part- participle. In the Greek, you have a present active participle from gnosko. And this participle lacks the article. Because it lacks an article, we know that this is an, an adverbial participle of cause. So it should be, the whole thought here should be expressed. Count it all joy because... Now we know how and why we can count it all joy because you know something. You know something. You know a principle of doctrine. And that principle of doctrine is then given in the rest of verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces or works out or brings about the consequences or the result of endurance in your soul. Now let's talk about this a little bit. We need to break these words down and understand the depth of thought here. We can count it all joy because we know something. We know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Well, what is the testing of your faith? This is a phrase that uses the word dokimion. D-O-K-I-M-I-O-N. Now, dokimion is the noun form. There is a, that's the masculine noun form. Uh, Dokime is the feminine noun form. And the verb form is dokimazo, which is a very, very important verb. And it means to test, to examine, uh, to try something, to determine the genuineness of it. It, uh, The noun means a test or an evaluation procedure. So what we're looking at here is the principle is that we know that we're going to go through certain evaluations, certain tests. Now, the purpose of the evaluation is not to see how little we know or how big a failure we're going to be in that test, but the issue is to reveal what doctrine we do know and to give, it, give us an opportunity to use that to advance in the spiritual life. So this is a test or evaluation for the purpose of determining the genuineness of something. So I want to go over the doctrine of evaluation testing. The well, there went the clock. The doctrine of evaluation testing. 
the Greek words dokimion and dokimazo tell us that everything in our lives as a believer is designed to advance us in the spiritual life. We should look at every situation we run into as an opportunity to choose for or against God. Now, I have given you a handout there, and it has more on it than what's on the overhead, because I want to outline, use this as an outline for understanding the spiritual life. The way to read this is over here on your left. It's a cross of salvation. We enter into the spiritual life by faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As we move through this flow chart, the next step is that we run into various tests of doctrine. Now, why do I call this tests of doctrine? Call this test of doctrine because when we see the phrase here, testing of your faith, faith here is the Greek word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, and it can have two meanings. The first meaning is an active meaning, and the second meaning is a passive meaning. The active meaning relates to the faith rest drill, actively believing the promises of God. Mixing the promises of God with faith. Putting your faith and confidence in doctrinal principles, doctrinal conclusions, doctrinal rationales. That's the faith rest drill. An active sense of faith. But there's a passive sense of faith, and that relates to what is believed. The object of your faith in the faith rest drill. In other words, what is believed is Bible doctrine. So what we have here is this is a test not of your faith in terms of the active sense of the faith rest drill, but to evaluate the doctrine that's in your soul. Because what happens in the dynamic of testing is you have to focus on doctrine that's in your soul and bring that up as the object of the faith rest drill. So the test is on the doctrine of your soul. So when you look at the chart, tests of doctrine. Each situation in life is an evaluation procedure to give you an opportunity to use the doctrine that's in your soul. At that point, you exercise volition. You can be positive towards doctrine and move into the upper circle on the chart. Or you can be negative to doctrine, reject the use of Scripture, try to do it in the power of the sin nature, and you go through the bottom cycle. Now let's break these down a minute. If you go through the bottom cycle, you say, no, I'm in this test, I'm going to handle it in my own power, I'm going to use human viewpoint techniques to handle the adversity in my life, I'm going to go to a psychologist or counselor or whatever it might be. Now that doesn't mean that if you need medicine, you don't use medicine. You know, sometimes people need, need uh, uh, to use medicine to take care of whatever problems they have, and so you need to stay on your medication. But it's also important for you to be using doctors. Medication is just a means sometimes of getting you to a position that stabilizes you medically and, and, if you, uh, and then focusing on learning doctrine and letting doctrine do, go through that healing process of restoring and renovating your soul. If you're negative to doctrine, the result is you're under sin nature control. 
the first block you go to in the flow chart is you produce sin through the whole through the area of uh, weakness in the sin nature. You produce human good through the area of strength in the sin nature, and this is called in the Bible temporal death. It's temporal death because you're not, even though you have eternal life, you it, it's a dead life. It's non-productive spiritually. The consequence of that, if you stay there long enough, is it produces weakness in your life and instability. As that continues, it goes to the third stage, which develops spiritual regression, and your heart becomes callous and hardened towards the things of God, towards doctrine, and towards spiritual truth. And this operates as a cycle. If you stay here throughout your whole life and you come out that cycle through this particular arrow, you die and you stand at the resurrection before the judgment seat of Christ, which is called the Bema seat in the Greek. And instead of getting rewards and inheritance, you lose rewards and there is temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I have given you Scripture passages for all of these and we'll take some time to study those passages as we go through this. I just want to give you an overview of this process. If you're positive to doctrine, you come to the test and you respond positively and you apply the doctrine that's in your soul. You're under the filling of the Holy Spirit so you produce divine good. You begin to experience the riches and the depth of life. The idea of eternal life in the Scriptures, as we're going to see in our study of John on Sunday morning, is not life without existence. It has to, that's just quantity. It has to do with the depth and the quality of that life. Jesus said in, in John 10.10, I didn't come like a thief to destroy, but I came to give life and to give it abundantly. So what we're talking about here is as you learn to grow in the spiritual life, go through the tests of doctrine, applying doctrine, then you develop a capacity for life and for happiness. And this increases your enjoyment of life. And you begin to look out into the whole realm of existence and you begin to take pleasure in so many more things than you ever did before because they're all part of God's creation. And so your capacity for life increases in the depth and the quality of your life increases. And you provide evidence through your life of the grace of God in your life and the truth of Scripture. As this continues, it produces in your life steadfast endurance, persistence in the spiritual life. You hang in there in spite of any obstacles. And the result is you move towards the adult spiritual life and spiritual maturity. And this in itself provides the cycle towards spiritual growth. The result is that when you die and you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you will be given rewards and inheritance, and the Lord will say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, that we have seen that overview, let's get back to the doctrine of evaluation testing. Point number one had to do with definition. The Greek words dokimion and dokimazo refer to a test, an evaluation procedure, an examination try to determine the genuineness of something. The second point under the definition is that situations in life provide us the opportunity to use the doctrine that we've learned and stored in our soul so that we can advance in the spiritual life, experience the reality of divine grace in our life and the sufficiency of divine provision and demonstrate to humanity and to angels that the plan of God really works. I can't tell you how many times over life you hear somebody say, well, you know, I've been going to 
that doctrinal church for so long, but you know, doctrine doesn't work. And then I went to this. I went to this psychologist. I went to this therapy session. I went to this seminar. And all of a sudden, I can really solve the problems in my life. Well, as soon as you hear somebody say that, the first warning bell that goes off is that for a long time, this person has been operating down here under the control of the sin nature. They have not been learning doctrine and they haven't been applying it. There's no spiritual growth that's been taking place. And finally, it's crashing in upon them. Because the reason doctrine doesn't work is they've never consistently applied it. Scriptures are clear. I mean, if you say doctrine doesn't work, what you're ultimately saying is that God did not know about my problem in eternity past. And my problem is so great and so powerful and so overwhelming that, golly, we had to wait until Sigmund Freud came along before we could solve the problem. And that's just garbage. What you're saying is it, it, it's... it's um, Who's this guy with the seven, uh, with the habits of the seven highly ineffective people, or whatever he is? Uh, you know, that's the big one of the big things today is all these management techniques, and frankly, all they are is management techniques to manage stress. And as I said at the beginning of this study, one of the vital things about Scripture is that God gave us stress busters, problem-solving devices that can completely solve any problem and avoid stress. Adversity is the outside pressure of stress on the soul. Stress is the inside pressure as a result of the sin nature. Adversity is you can't avoid, but stress is avoidable. Stress is up to your volition whether or not you apply doctrine to your situation. So if you're going to go anywhere in the spiritual life, you have to believe doctrine, and believe me, doctrine works. Point number two in the doctrine of evaluation testing is that there are two classifications of evaluation in the Scripture. The first classification is a self-evaluation procedure. This relates to the confession of sin in 1 John 1.9. We find the use of the word dokimazo in 1 Corinthians 11.28. But let a man examine himself. That's dokimazo. Let a man evaluate his own life and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That's what happens to us every time we get ready to confess our sins as we evaluate our life. We take a look at what we've done, what we've thought, what we've said over the, since the last time we took the time to confess our sins. And we evaluate our life to see if we're in fellowship or out of fellowship. Self-evaluation. It's nobody else's business. We're to examine ourselves, not the person sitting next to us in Bible class. The second verse that deals with this is 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And at this point, that is talking about being in fellowship. That is analogous to being in fellowship. Evaluate yourself to see that you are in the faith. That is, filled with the Holy Spirit in a position where you can use doctrine. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? So he's not talking about becoming a believer. At the point of salvation, we come to the cross. At that point, God, through God the Holy Spirit, we are entered into and identified with Jesus Christ. And we are said to be in Christ. This is an eternal relationship that nothing can sever. Now, when he, Paul says, 
Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Not only are we in Christ, but Jesus Christ takes up residence inside of us, and all three members of the Trinity indwell every single believer. So it's obvious here that he is writing to them as believers. So when he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith, he is not saying, test yourselves to see if you are a believer. He is saying, test yourselves to see if you are in fellowship, to see if you are under the filling of the Holy Spirit where you can use doctrine and apply doctrine for divine good in your life. So, evaluation is used in the Scriptures in terms of self-evaluation, and secondly, evaluation by God. This is, we find this in two passages. One is at the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.13, when we will be evaluated by the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. This takes place right now. We're living in the church age. Here's the cross, which ended the age of Israel. It was a short period before the Holy Spirit was sent down on the day of Pentecost, which began the church age. Today we live in the most unique age of all time, the church age, the dispensation of the church, which will end when Jesus Christ comes for his for all church age believers at the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is followed by a seven year period of tribulation, which time Jesus Christ descends to the earth, wipes out the Antichrist and the false prophet and their armies at the Battle of Armageddon, and establishes a thousand year rule on the earth. Now, during this seven-year period, when Satan is running amok on planet Earth, in heaven, all believers in the church age are going through their evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. The result of that is that all of our everything that we've done, all of our production, while we're here on Earth, is burned up. It's evaluated. The imagery is that of a huge furnace. All of our production is put in it and tested by fire. That which is wood, hay, and stubble is burned up, and what is left... See, what is left is what you see. You don't see the wood, hay, and stubble. And everybody's concerned, oh man, when I get to the judgment seat of Christ, everybody's going to see all the sin I committed in my life. No, that's not the issue. Sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. It's never going to be brought up again. The issue is no longer sin. The issue is, do you have the righteousness God requires to get into heaven? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ at that instant, God the Father imputes to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because you possess the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you are going to be allowed into heaven. You can have an eternal relationship with God the Father. The unbeliever does not have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. All he has is all of his good deeds. The Scripture says that all of our righteousness, all of our good deeds, are as filthy rags. No matter how good they are, they're not good enough to match up to the standard of God's absolute righteousness. And that's why the unbeliever is sent to eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. We are evaluated. All the wood, hay, and stubble burns up so nobody else sees it. What's left is the production of our life. Divine good. Gold, silver, precious stones. When that, is, that evaluation procedure is completed, then we are rewarded on the basis of what's left. What's left is a reflection of the capacity for eternal life, the capacity for relationship with God, and the capacity for heaven that we have 
as a result of our spiritual growth on earth. What we are now, what we are doing now, determines who we will be and what we will have in eternity. That's, as you come to understand that, that's the personal sense of our eternal destiny. What you do today determines who you will be in eternity. If you are a failure in the spiritual life today and you do not learn doctrine and you do not apply doctrine in your life, then when you enter into heaven, you will bring nothing with you. No, no gold, silver, precious stones. Everything will be burned up. And the scripture says, that passage in 1 Corinthians 3 says, you will be saved, yet is through fire. You're barely going to get in there. You have no capacity for your surroundings. You have no understanding of the dynamics of a relationship with God because you've never been doing it. So you're just going to enter into heaven and you're going to have an, an eternal existence in heaven. You're going to have a certain level of happiness and joy, but it will be different from the person who was a success in the spiritual life. Now, some people say when they hear that, well, that's not fair. Well, the issue is your volition. The issue isn't fairness. You have every opportunity right now to be just as successful as the next person. When you're in heaven, you're not going to really know that you're not as happy as the next person. An illustration. Let's say the person sitting next to you, everybody keep a poker face and don't laugh. Let's say the person next to you has an IQ of 150 and you have an IQ of 90. Well, you're, you don't understand what it's like to have an IQ of 150. You're not jealous. You don't have a problem with that. You don't understand. You can't relate. You can enjoy life on your own terms to whatever degree of intelligence that you have. And that person next to you who has the high IQ, they can appreciate life at the level to which their IQ entitles them. You don't know that you're missing anything. It's a difference in capacity of intelligence. Well, what we're talking about here is a difference in capacity for enjoying and appreciating heaven, a relationship with God, and an eternal fellowship with God in heaven. So the judgment seat of Christ evaluates everything we do in in time and rewards us on that basis. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 tells us that God evaluates us on a daily basis. So evaluation in the Scripture comes in two categories. Self-evaluation, which is confession of sin, and evaluation by God, both daily, 1 Thess 2.4, and at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, point number three. Tests are not designed to emphasize human failure and inadequacy, but to highlight the divine good in the believer's life so that the believer can discard the bad, remove any distractions, and advance in the spiritual life. Tests are not designed to emphasize your failures. They're not designed to point out what you haven't learned. They're designed to emphasize and highlight the divine good, the positive growth that's taken place, and to reveal to you the issues in your life so you can discard the bad, remove distractions, and advance in the spiritual life. Point number four. These tests are designed to evaluate the doctrine in your soul. Not the soul of somebody else. It's nobody else's business what's going on in your soul. Your spiritual life is between you and the Lord. 
Too often somebody gets involved in somebody else's life and thinks they ought to have a spiritual life like their spiritual life. Well, the principles are the same, but growth is different. These are tests of doctrine, tests of faith. Faith is pistis in the genitive. P-I-S, T-I-S. It's a genitive of description. Describing the kinds of tests. Tests related to doctrine. Pistis has a passive sense of doctrine. Now what exactly is Bible doctrine? I want to make sure you understand what, what we mean by Bible doctrine. Some people think, oh, doctrine is just cold, dead, academic truth that it does not relate to anything. And there is a way in which people use doctrine and, and that might, might relate. But that's not what we mean. What we mean is the teaching of God's Word in every area of life. Bible doctrine is the classification and categorization of the concepts and principles gleaned from the text of the original languages of the Bible. Bible doctrine is the classification and categorization of the concepts and principles gleaned from the text of the original language of the Bible. See, God does not say everything there is to say about any given subject in any one passage. You have to compare passage with passage, thought with thought. It's a long process. Some of you have a lot of different questions about the spiritual life, and if you keep coming to Bible class, the result is that you're going to learn all that you need to learn. These questions will all be answered. It just takes time. I still have questions. There are many passages that I scratch my head over at times, and I just haven't had the time to really dig into those. In fact, it's interesting that uh, a lot of times you'll hear, see somebody first comes out of seminary, and they're teaching at one level. And then after they've been teaching for five or six years, and they've had some time to really start studying and make these things their own, you begin to see their positions change and shift and refine their thought because those first four or five years they're basically teaching whatever somebody told them. They're not teaching what they've dug out of the Scriptures on their own yet. So we all go through that growth process. Bible doctrine is a classification and categorization of the concepts and principles gleaned from the text of the original languages. When we compare Scripture with Scripture, we can begin to categorize doctrine into various topics and subjects and relate them to various issues. This makes it easy for you to grasp and understand those principles. We learn almost everything in life through categorization and classification. It makes learning and growing in any subject uh, that much easier. Bible doctrine is the only source of knowledge about God, the only way to know and love Jesus Christ. It's the only source of divine viewpoint. Life is a constant battle between divine viewpoint and human viewpoint. The Bible in its entirety, remember the Bible was written over a period of 2,000 years by over 60 different authors, many of whom we don't know. And the greatest education available at that time in history. There other people like Amos, who was a herdsman and a fig picker. You had others who were shepherds, like David, and later became royalty. You had those like Solomon, who was raised an aristocrat with incredible wealth 
and power at his command, the uh, king of probably the greatest empire at that time in history. You have others like uh, uh, Micah and Obadiah. We're not sure what they did. They were prophets of the Lord, but we don't know what their occupations were, what their backgrounds, what their training was. You have people like Luke in the New Testament who was a physician. Matthew who was a tax collector. Uh, Peter who was a businessman, had a commercial fishing enterprise. All kinds of different people, yet over a period of 2,000 years, 60 different authors, there is one united message. And this message presents God's viewpoint, God's opinion. Let me tell you, that's the only opinion that matters. God's opinion on everything in life. That is divine viewpoint. As a believer, the process of sanctification is the process of renovating our thinking, renewing our mind by learning doctrine so that we can think like God thinks and look at life from the divine viewpoint. The human viewpoint is the viewpoint of the sin nature. It's the cosmic viewpoint, the viewpoint of Satan, the viewpoint of man apart from God. It is our job to destroy all human viewpoint in our soul. This is a never-ending battle. So when we come to the Scriptures, we go through life, we go through various tests. These are designed to evaluate the doctrine in our soul. First Peter echoes this same thought that we find in James. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Apparently the people that he was, that he was writing to were going through a lot of different uh, adversities. They were going through persecutions, testings, sufferings. And he says, you have been distressed by various trials, tests, for a purpose. That's the beginning of verse 7. That is a Hena clause indicating purpose. You've been distressed by these trials for the purpose that the proof of your faith. Here we have almost the identical phraseology we have in James. Dachimion, case, pistuo. The testing, the evaluation, that the evaluation of your faith, your doctrine, being more precious, that is the doctrine being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does he mean by the revelation of Jesus Christ? He means the judgment seat of Christ. What's the purpose for testing? The purpose for testing is producing that which is of eternal value at the judgment seat of Christ, and that and that alone is what brings glory to God, maximum glory to God in the angelic conflict. So point number four, these tests are designed to evaluate the doctrine in your soul. Point number five, doctrine in your soul is the prerequisite for evaluation testing. There's no doctrine in your soul any, any situation you fall into is just going to, you're just going to collapse and fall apart. You're going to go into carnality. The sin nature is going to dominate your thinking and your life is just going to go down the tubes. If there's no doctrine to evaluate, then that test is going to destroy you. Doctrine in your soul is the prerequisite for evaluation testing. First, the believer must renew his mind. You have to come to Bible class. You have to learn some doctrine. It has to be an object of faith. Faith mixes with the promises of God, uses doctrinal conclusion, doctrinal rationales to reach doctrinal 
conclusions. This is Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed from what? What we've been talking about already. Transformed from a life that is dominated by human viewpoints. See, at the moment you're saved, this is your mentality. Your mentality has all kinds of data in it. All kinds of opinions. All that opinion is labeled human viewpoint. And what you have to do is completely re-educate yourself. Completely re-educate yourself. doesn't matter when you were saved. You might have been three or four years old when you were saved. Well, you didn't have a whole lot of human viewpoint there, but you grew up in a home where your parents had a certain amount of human viewpoint, and you picked that up from your parents. Your teachers had a certain amount of human viewpoint, and you picked some of that up from your teachers. Your friends and peers had a lot of human viewpoint, and you picked up a lot of human viewpoint from them. So by the time you get to a semblance of adulthood where you can start thinking for yourself, uh, it's very rare to find anybody who isn't loaded with human viewpoint. Human viewpoint is also the natural product of the sin nature whenever we're out of fellowship. So it's a, if you want to have human viewpoint in your soul, it's just real easy. All you have to do is just live and you're going to be full of human viewpoint. Getting divine viewpoint in your soul is a battle. That's the struggle. You have to make coming to Bible class the highest priority in your life, learning doctrine the highest priority of your life, so that you can completely renew your mind. You have to re-educate yourself from the ground up. It's not just the details that are in your mind, but it's even how you think. We've talked in the past that there are different systems of learning. There's rationalism. Rationalism starts with the human intellect and says, on the principles of thought and thought alone, I can find truth. Through the use of rigorous logic, empiricism. Empiricism says that I can arrive at absolute truth on the basis of experience, sense knowledge, through the use of the rigorous use of logic. Mysticism says I really don't need to be very logical. I just have to have some sort of intuitive knowledge and live my life on that basis. And then Scripture is revelation. Basic thought here is I don't know anything. I have to trust God who is omniscient, knows everything, and it operates on the principle as do the others really faith. Rationalism ultimately is faith in your own intellect. Empiricism is a faith that you can evaluate your sense knowledge. Uh, Mysticism is faith that my intuitions are really absolute truth. Faith underlies every single system. Don't ever let the scientist or the empiricist or the rationalist convince you that it's faith or reason. The issue is faith in reason or faith in God. The issue is not faith or reason. So the issue in the spiritual life is to rethink. You have to rethink how you think. If you primarily dominated rationalism, you have to learn to operate on revelation. If you've been operating on empiricism, you have to renovate the way in which you think and focus on revelation as your new system of knowledge. If you've been operating on mysticism, it's really going to be difficult because the average mystic thinks that that's spiritual. And he's so used to being subjective and thinking in terms of inner impressions and inner feelings that you identify that with the voice of God. And the mystic is the most difficult one to deal with of the whole bunch because they're convinced that, and, you, and their, their system is irrational. So it doesn't matter what you say, you can't come at them from, 
from a position of reason and logic because they reject that as, 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 as being incapable of ever arriving at truth. So renewing the mind is not just a simple matter of renewing the, rearranging the furniture in the mind. You've got to rebuild the whole house in which you put the furniture. And that's a lifetime process. So doctrine in the soul is the prerequisite for evaluation testing. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 5.8 For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Let's put this back up here. I didn't have room for all of this. This upper area is the realm of light. This lower area is the realm of darkness. When you are a believer, when you are an unbeliever, you are in the realm of darkness. You are in the domain of darkness. Paul says that we are transformed at salvation from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. But he says you are formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord positionally. But you have to walk as children of light. That's what John's talking about in 1 John 1, is walking in the light, walking up here, filled with the Spirit, learning doctrine, applying it in your life. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. That's production down here under the category of evidence in this block. Learning, literally, this is our word dokimazo, literally proving or demonstrating what is pleasing to the Lord. So we have to uh, prove that by everything we do in life. Uh, that's what happens in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to the world, but transformed by renewing of your mind that you may prove. There's the word. Prove. Demonstrate. What the will of God is, that it is good and acceptable and complete. That's it. What do you do when you apply doctrine at this test and you're living up here? You're demonstrating by your life that everything in God's Word is true. Your life is a testimony in the Supreme, before the Supreme Court of Heaven in the angelic conflict to the veracity of God's Word that this works. This is absolute truth. Your life then is a visual testimony. Point number six, this evaluation testing is related to your role as a witness to all humanity and to angels in the angelic conflict. That takes us to point seven. Evaluation testing is between each individual believer and the Lord, and no one else can evaluate. It's no one else's business how you're doing or what's happening to you. This problem always brings about a lot of discipline. Remember, this is something everybody gets confused on. There's a difference between judging and evaluation. Most people don't understand that. As soon as you start making an evaluative decision about someone or something, somebody says, don't judge lest you be judged. It's ridiculous. Scripture's clear. We have to make all kinds of evaluative decisions. When it comes time to elect or to choose a deacon, we have to evaluate that individual on the basis of criteria in 1 Timothy chapter 3. When you chose a pastor, you went through an evaluative process. When we choose missionaries to support, we have to evaluate them and evaluate their ministry and how they're using their time. So there's a difference between evaluation and judging. Judging is putting yourself in the place of the Supreme Court of Heaven 
to de in determining the quality of somebody else's spiritual life and then engaging in verbal sins like gossip, maligning, or slander. This is always motivated by underlying mental attitude sins like arrogance, jealousy, bitterness, hatred, vindictiveness, implacability, self-pity, whatever it may be. Mental attitude sins promote the sins of the tongue and motivate the sins of the tongue. Matthew 7.1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. That's divine discipline. So whether the issue is not whether in, judge, in making a judgment, it's not whether or not you're, you're right. See, a lot of people think, well, what I'm saying about this person is really true. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. It's none of your business. You have to keep your mouth shut. No matter what you know, your accuracy is not the issue. It's that you have to let give that other person the privacy and the freedom to fail. If you don't give people the freedom to fail, they will not have the freedom to succeed. That's a basic principle, of the, of the, a basic establishment principle, something our government has forgotten. If you do not give people the freedom to fail, then you're going to limit their freedom to succeed. See, that's what communism did. That's what socialism does. It limits their freedom to fail. When you take, put a safety net there so people can't fail, then you have to take away from the successful people so that you can give to the failures. And you limit people, people's ability to succeed when you provide any kind of safety net. And that's just wrong. That, that's anti-freedom. That, that is nothing more than slavery and arrogance. And for people to ever vote for anybody who operates on that kind of a basis or who, who votes for any kind of legislation that promotes any sort of a welfare system is totally contrary to any principle of freedom or establishment in the Word of God. Privacy is essential. You have to give people the freedom to succeed and fail, and you take that away from them when you start running them down, gossiping, you see something that they did, and you start telling everybody else about it. It's between them and the Lord, and let the Lord deal with it. Matthew 7, 2 says, For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by what measure you measure to others, it will be measured back to you. And what happens here is you come under triple compound divine discipline. First of all, you're going to be disciplined for the mental attitude sin, which motivates the sin of the tongue. Secondly, you're going to be disciplined for the sins of the tongue, the gossip, maligning, whatever it was the slander, whatever. Third, you're going to have the sin that you mentioned is going to be measured out to you on the basis of that sin. Whatever measure you measure others, it will be measured back to you. So that's going to come back to you on the basis of the, the sin that you're judging the other person for. So this is triple compound divine discipline. You're just going to end up making your life miserable when you get involved in trying to judge or evaluate somebody else's spiritual life. Just stay out of their business. Point number eight, the issue is in testing is not pleasing God, or not pleasing man, but pleasing God. The issue in the test is pleasing God, not man. Don't worry about what other people think. The problem with too many Christians is that they're so concerned about what somebody else thinks, they're not concerned enough with what God thinks. God is the issue. And then finally, point nine, all evaluation testing is designed to prepare the believer for the judgment seat of Christ. See, God wants you to reach this point with gold, silver, and precious stones. 
That's what he wants. And so his goal is to get you from here to here. And the way to do that is through tests, adversity, suffering for blessing. Every time giving you the opportunity to choose for or against God, every time you choose for God, it glorifies God, you grow spiritually, produces endurance, leads you to maturity in the adult spiritual life, and all this is outlined in the next verse of James, which we'll begin to get into maybe next, no, not next Wednesday night. There will be no Bible class next Wednesday night, so we'll have Wednesday night Bible class. We'll resume two weeks from tonight. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes, close in prayer. Father, we thank you for all that you've provided for us, for the way that we can understand the spiritual life through the various passages of Scripture so we know where you are taking us and how we can get there. Because our heart's desire is to glorify you. And we know that the only way we can do that is by learning as much doctrine as we can, letting it just saturate our soul so that we live it, breathe it, and think it in everything that we do. So that whatever situation we come into, whatever testing we fall into, whatever adversity, that our immediate response will be to apply doctrine the pertinent doctrines for that situation. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would be convinced from your word that they need to get right with you, that they need to make that most important decision in their life regarding their eternal destiny, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. Now, Father, we thank you again for this time and ask that the Holy Spirit would bring these things to our memory. In the name of Jesus Christ.